All right, what's up, Liquid Church? How y'all doing? All right. My name's Nathan. I'm one of the pastors here. And guess what? One week until Christmas. Who's excited? I know. It is amazing. Let me, let me ask you. I got a question for you. How many of you are like, oh, I'm ready to go this season? Presents are wrapped. They're under the tree. The Christmas shopping is done. I did all the, the groceries. Who's all there? Okay, a couple of you. How many of you are like me where you're panicking? Like in a rush? You haven't done your Christmas shopping yet? Okay. There's, there's a couple out there. Well, listen, wherever you're at in the spectrum, don't worry. It'll be okay. You'll get it all done. It'll all happen right when it's supposed to. You know, I, I do love this time of year. It's awesome. The Christmas lights, the, the, the decorations, the food, it's, it's all amazing. And especially I love the Christmas tree. And about, I think it was last year, last Christmas, I finally had a deep-held uh, Christmas tradition finally take place in our household, and that is when we bought the synthetic tree. Yes, not the fake tree, folks. It's the synthetic tree, the artificial tree, because you know, there's just nothing better than opening up a box and mm, the smell of plastic just kind of fills your house. It's nothing better than that, right? But listen, whether you do the artificial tree or, or the real tree, um, the best part's got to be decorating. Am I right? Like, you love decorating that tree, and so it's fun. Uh, my daughter, she's finally six, and so this is her decorating our Christmas tree. She's climbing on furniture, getting all that stuff up there. And then there's my son, Wesley. He's two. He takes all the things off of the tree. That's his thing. So we put him in charge of taking care of the nativity scene and the wise men. But it's a lot of fun. You know, we have this Christmas tradition we've been doing forever. We make homemade pizza. We decorate the tree, put on Christmas music, Christmas movies, and we just have a good time. And for the longest time, I thought there is no wrong way to decorate a Christmas tree. I found that there are very wrong ways of decorating the Christmas tree. And it's what I like to call the Christmas tree fail. And if you experience any of these or you've seen these happen, uh, yeah, I, I looked online and found a couple ones I feel like I had to share with you. And this is one right here. This is uh, the epitome of laziness to me. This is the, um, the car freshener <laughs> hanging off of a back scratcher and all the presents that, that's at a whole new level. I'm like, come on, go and chop a bush down or something, right? Um, and so that's that one. Or if you have pets, and maybe you've experienced this with the Christmas tree, like you get a pet and you're setting up your tree. Uh, you know, here's a dog attacking. Well, he looks like he's trying to get at the ornament. It looks like there's like an angry bird on top, and he's climbing and clawing his way up the tree. Got to be careful with animals and trees because they can do all sorts of things that we can't even talk about, right? Um, or some of you, I know, you, you want the perfect tree, you do whatever it takes, and so this to me is a little bit of a fail, because, you know, okay, I get it, you want everything just right, but you got to take the saran wrap off the tree, that's, that's kind of like a given, right, you got to take the wrapping off, right? But now this next one, it's less of a Christmas tree fail, more of a wardrobe malfunction. Um, this is, whoa, I saw Daddy flashing Santa Claus! It's like children, avert your eyes, don't look, you know, the kids are all laughing, they think it's hilarious, right? But, you know, we've been talking a lot about Christmas trees uh, during this series, but really, this series is all about what we call the family tree. When we talk about the family tree, we're really talking about our ancestors, those who came before us, and we've been looking at the family tree of Jesus, the people in Jesus' family tree that brought us the Messiah in the flesh uh, in our world today. And so, you know, we looked at a couple different characters. Pastor Tim, a couple weeks ago, talked about Jacob, right? Remember, Jacob, he had that ladder that went up to heaven, and, and Jacob was a con man. He was manipulative. He did whatever it took to survive, and yet God had this vision, or he had this vision from God uh, about Jesus, that Jesus is the ladder, he is the way of salvation. And last week, we talked about Rahab. And her red rope, which she used to, to lower the spies so that they could be saved. And Rahab was a prostitute, 
one of Jesus' great, 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 great grandmothers. And, and she was part of Jesus' line. And so we, we find all these different characters. And in fact, in Liquid Family, if you have an elementary school kid, they're making these ornaments that are called from the Jesse tree. The Jesse tree, this is another part of the line of David. This is where we kind of get all these come from. And so we, you know, we talk about different other like, characters and how they're all a mess. One of the things that yeah, we learned is that the family of Jesus is super dysfunctional, right? Like, they make your family look like the Brady Bunch or, you know, the Waltons or like the Gilmore Girls, right? And you just kind of go, man, like, you know, Jesus' family is a mess. And in fact, you know, last week, Pastor Tim showed us the genealogy or kind of the lineage of Jesus. And it's really interesting in Matthew chapter 1. Look at that real quick. It says this, Salmon, oh, that's the guy, not the fish, was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. And Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was who? Ruth. How many of you guys remember a couple months ago we talked about Ruth? Ruth and Boaz, right? They're part of Jesus' family tree. In fact, Boaz's mom was Rahab, right? And there was Ruth. They had a son, Obed, the father of who? Jesse. That's where we get the Jesse tree from. And Jesse, the father of who? King David. Yes. King David was actually part of Jesus' family tree. King David was actually uh, the royal line from which Jesus came from. And that's what's so exciting, because one of the things that we know is that Jesus is, will ro- rule for all eternity from the throne of David. Jesus is royalty. But if you notice on here, it says Jesse, the father of King David. Jesse's not a king. How did David become one of the most powerful men in the country? How did David become king? We're going to take a look at that. If you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 16. We'll be looking at verses 6 to 12. As you're kind of getting set up there, you can uh, look on your phones or whatever it is you need. Um, but let me give you a little bit of background on what's going on here. Samuel is actually one of the prophets. Prophet simply means they're a mouthpiece for God. They speak for God. And so God has, uh, has Samuel as his mouthpiece. And the people go up to Samuel one day and say, say Samuel, we want a real king. See, I was like, well, you have a real king. God is your king. He brought you out of Egypt. He brought you out of slavery. What are you talking about? No, Sam, you don't understand. We've been looking around at all the other kings and their flesh and blood kings. We want a flesh and blood king. So Samuel uh, tells God this, and God just says, you know what? We're going to give him a flesh and blood king, but it's not going to be what they need. But we're going to give them what they want. And so they have this new king, and his name is Saul. And at first, things are going great. Saul seems like a good king. But Saul is also a people pleaser. He wants people to like him. He, he's disobedient to God. He chooses people over God. And this finally gets to the point where it gets so bad, God just says, we need to find a new king. But this time, we're going to get a king that I choose. We're going to get a king after that's going to reflect my heart. And so God sends Samuel on this mission, and he ends up going to this little backwaters town called Bethlehem. And while he's in Bethlehem, he ends up in this house of this guy named Jesse, who has eight sons. And so while he's there, this is where we find ourselves in the story, where Samuel is going to start to see what's going on. It says here in verse 6, When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height. For I've rejected him. So I want you to have this picture in your mind that Samuel just got there. There's all these brothers. They're all kind of standing in line, right? And he's kind of looking them over, you know, like a dog show. He's going to open your mouth and see what they got. Okay, good oral care right there. That's great. He's kind of going down the line. And as he's doing this, he's got, he kind of knows what he's looking for. And he sees Eliab. He's like, all right, he's strong. He's tough. He's king material. But God says, nope, that's not him. And Samuel's like, well, God, why not? So God says, the Lord does not look 
at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. In other words, Sammy, you're not looking for what I'm looking for. You think what, you, you think what a king looks like is obvious? I want to show you what a real king looks like. And so Sam's like, all right, God, you don't want the strong, handsome one. Maybe we'll see what the next one is. And so then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. And Abinadab's like the funny one, right? You know, he's cracking jokes. He's got a great personality. But, but God's like, no, not him. And Sam was like, okay, you don't want the strong one. You don't want the funny one. And then Jesse then had Shema pass by. But Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. And Shema is like the smart one, right? Went to Princeton and Harvard. He's got his MBA and his doctorate. You know, this would be the ideal king, like a scholarly, philosophical king. God's like, nope, it's not him either. So Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? Meaning, did I just put the wrong coordinates in the GPS? Like, am I in the wrong house? Am I lost? Like, what's going on here? And so that's when Jesse kind of sheepishly says this, well, there is still the youngest. He answered, but he is tending the sheep. And then Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. This whole idea of tending the sheep is this idea, you know, we have the youngest, but he's watching the, the sheep. Like, you know, he's in middle school. Like, he, you know, he's not a king. He just, we just have him. He's not really worth the effort. And Samuel said, absolutely not. God, bring him in. We need to see him. We're not, we're not going to sit down until he gets here. And so he sent and had him brought in, and he was ruddy with a fine appearance and handsome features. And the Lord said, rise and anoint him. He is the one. Do you ever wonder, when you read this story, what was it that God saw that Samuel, the prophet, didn't see, that Jesse, the father, didn't see, but yet God was able to see something. Because when you look at Eliab, you know, he's kind of like the Chris Pratt of the family, right? You guys know Chris Pratt, you know? He was in Guardians of the Galaxy, right? Or uh, Jurassic World. He's the guy that's going to save the world. Now, don't think Chris Pratt parks in recreation. That's a different Chris Pratt. But, you know, you look at him, he's going to save you from dinosaurs. You know, he's going to fight galactic uh, empires to save you. I want to follow that guy, right? But he wasn't the one. In fact, it was this middle school kid, David, who was more like, Car like uh, Carl Grimes from The Walking Dead, right? Carl, right? <laughs> you know, kind of wiry and kind of dirty because he's sleeping outside in the rain and the sun. He's kind of, uh, you know, he's kind of, you know, always looking around just in case zombies are coming or bears and lions because that's kind of how he always is. He's not look like a king. He's a kid. But yet God saw something that he lacked that he had. It was his heart. There's something about the heart. Because God doesn't see what we see. God sees beyond what we see. God sees beyond what we see. Because we've kind of been taught and conditioned from early on, if we can get a sense of what the surface of things look like, maybe it can help us understand what's going on on the inside, right? And, and we've been really conditioned to do this during Christmas, right? Remember when you were a kid, you'd come running down the stairs at Christmas time, you'd come to the tree, and you'd come to the presents, right? And so you're going through these presents, and you're like, oh, I don't like, you know, you're kind of looking at it, you go, just shake it a little bit, see, is this, does this have what I wanted? Is this going to be awesome? Because we're all caught up with the glitz and the glam, what looks good on the outside. And we do this not just at Christmas time, but that's just kind of how we always do things. We're looking on the outward appearance, because man judges based on the outward appearance, don't we? 
Man judges by the outward appearance. That's how we see things, and that's how we've been taught and conditioned and, and from an early age. In fact, how many of you guys have ever done the white elephant gift exchange? Any of you guys done that one? Yeah, or the Yankee swap, that's another name for it. Really, the way it works is this, is you go around your house and find some junk, right? And you find the biggest, beautiful box to put it in or a big, beautiful gift bag and put a ribbon on it, right? And I love doing this because what happens is, you know, if you've ever gone to White Alpha Gifts Exchange and no, no one's ever done it before, you know what they always go for? They always go for the nicest looking present, right? It's like they run to the tree and they're like, oh, this is it. Look at this gift. It's going to be beautiful. It's going to be awesome. And they go back to their spot and everyone's watching as they open it up and they start to go through the tissue paper and then all of a sudden it's a... Toilet plunger, okay. Oh, wait, there's more. There's a toilet seat, okay. Looks nice on the outside, but it's a bunch of crap on the inside, right? That's, that's essentially the white elephant gift exchange. But so often, as people, that's kind of what we end up doing, right? Don't we end up getting, uh, you know, when, we, when we're on social media, friends like Facebook or Instagram, we look at someone's life and we think, man, they have the best life ever. But it's really not the reality because all those pictures are curated, right? So, of course, you know, no one ever puts pictures of their crying kids or I failed the test, right, on Instagram, right? Or how about this? You know, you go and you go buy a car and you see the car of your dreams looks amazing. Then a couple of days later, it breaks down. It's a lemon because you're so focused on the outward appearance. You never really stop to kick the tires and look underneath the hood. Or maybe you're in a store, or you're walking down the street and you see someone, they're dressed a certain way or they look a certain way, they're, they're from a certain culture or background and it kind of, you all of a sudden make a split second judgment and you cross the street or you kind of try to avert your eyes. I mean, we all do that. We're all guilty of that. We all make these judgments all the time based on the outward appearance. Samuel did. Jesse did. Before them was the king, but they missed out on that king because they were judging on the outward appearance. They were looking at the, the tinsel and the lights and the outward packaging, but they couldn't see the heart. Because while man judges by the outward appearance, God judges the heart. God judges the heart. So what was it that God saw? Because, you know, you heard that David is a man after God's own what? Heart. What was it that God saw in David that Eliab didn't have? What were the qualities that David cultivated in the field with sheep? that would one day transfer over to being king? What were those qualities? We're going to look at four of them today. And you see, David was a man after God's own heart, and one of the first qualities is humility. David was a man of humility. Now, David had just been anointed king by Samuel, and, and he was one day going to take the throne, and, and he knew that. But, you know, in chapter 17, the very next section, one of the things that we read is that Jesse had an errand for David. He says this, take this roasted grain and these 10 loaves of bread for your brothers. Take along these 10 cheeses. So early in the morning, David left the flock with the shepherd, loaded up, and set out as Jesse had directed. You know, when I look at this verse, it's a little odd to me, right? Because think about it. David knows he's going to become the king. He, he, he just knows that's what's going to happen. And yet his dad has an errand for him. Go and, go and deliver crackers and cheese to your brother, David. You know what I'd say if that was me? Dad, I'm the king. You know, kings aren't your delivery boy. I'm not your delivery boy, Dad. You want to send all this stuff? Why don't you go and do it yourself? Because that's not what I do. I'm the king. I got more important matters. But what does David do? Look, he gets coverage for his trip. He gets someone to cover for him. And then he goes and he does what his dad asks. Why? 
because David had this heart of humility. The very fact that he's out taking care of the sheep, one of the most thankless jobs in that culture. But yet there he is doing it day in, day out because he knew that he was there to serve his dad, his father's household, which would one day prepare him to serve the household of God, to serve the kingdom. All those things were cultivated out when he was a shepherd. Because humility means that we have a right understanding of who we are. David knew that he was a servant. That's who God wanted him to be, to serve others first before he served himself. And, and for me, I've never seen this more uh, visible than in the friendship I have with a guy named Dave. This is my friend Dave. He's in this uh, uh, yellow neon vest here with a baseball bat. Don't know what he's going to do with it. But uh, Dave is a great guy. When you first meet Dave, the nicest guy in the world. I met him once. I was speaking at, at some youth group, and he was there. And so we connected. Great guy, really friendly, really awesome. Uh, but when you first talk to Dave, one of the things you notice is that he speaks very slowly, enunciates every word. But you also notice that he kind of slurs his words a little bit. You see, Dave had a bit of a speech impediment, you know, had some incredible things to say, really a sharp thinker, but it didn't come out as fast. And I remember, you know, a couple years later, I ended up uh, running the group of kids that he was one of the leaders at. And I remember, you know, kind of sitting down with him and I said, Dave, if you could do anything you could ever want, like, what's your dream? What's your dream job even? And Dave just looks right at me and says, Nathan, I'm doing my dream job. I go, yeah, tell me about that. I work at the local elementary school here. I love it. I'm a janitor, and so I get to serve the teachers and the principal and the administration some real tangible ways. Not only that, I get to show up, and I'm excited. I, I, get, to, I get to share with them just my faith, and I get to uh, be uh, you know, a source of encouragement and cheerlead people. I love doing that. I feel like that's what I'm made for. I remember just thinking, man, here's a guy who has a heart of a servant, and he just can't help but let it kind of brim to the surface. And, you know, another thing that David loved to do is that Dave loved to mentor high school kids. He loved to mentor high school kids, and he was doing it. He'd been doing it for over 10 years, and some of those kids had come back and were serving the, that youth group as leaders because of Dave's influence in their lives. And I remember one day, you know, Dave came up to me and said, Nathan, I really would like to speak to our high school kids. And, you know, I'm thinking, okay, these are New Jersey teenagers, Right? They are hardened and cynical and angry for no reason. You know, are you sure you want to do that? And he goes, yeah, of course. And so, yeah, I'm a little worried about him because he's got that speech impediment. But then David gets up there and he starts speaking. He starts speaking from his heart. I'll tell you, I saw something that was amazing. Every kid in that room, every high school kid, every cynical, hardened high school kid, silence. And they're just looking straight at him. You could hear a pin drop. Because they loved Dave, and they knew that Dave loved them, and that Dave cared for them, and he served them. And so that when Dave spoke and he shared from his heart, it just connected with them instantly. He was a janitor by day, but let me tell you, he was a power preacher at night. And it all culminated, in fact, this past June, he was actually asked to speak at the fifth grade commencement of all those kids. Because that faculty and that staff, they knew Dave, and they knew his heart, and they trusted him. And they said, we want him to speak to our kids and their families because he's got a heart of humility. See, Dave just lived that out. It was who he was. He'd cultivated that heart of humility, which is why, you know, he was named after a great king, which is a king of humility, and that was David. He had cultivated that quality in such a powerful and incredible way that he was able to be a blessing to all of those kids and their families. 
You know, King David had a spirit of humility, but that wasn't the only thing that set him apart. He also had another quality, which was he had a heart of joy. He had a heart of great, great joy. You know, eventually, David actually did become the king. And when David became king, uh, one of the tasks that he had to do was to move the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. Now, the Ark of the Covenant, if you've ever seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, this is the Ark of the Covenant, right? This is where the, they store the Ten Commandments. This is where the presence of God, they believed, rested. The presence of God lived in the Ark of the Covenant, right? And so David is, hearing, is, is in charge of moving this back into his hometown, the city of David, Jerusalem, right? And so you know what David did when he knew that the Ark was coming? You know what he did? He danced. He had a dance party. He couldn't stop moving. He's like, the dark is coming. All right. You know, he's getting excited. He's moving and he's grooving. You ever had that feeling, you know, when a song comes on the radio and you're like, this is my jam, son, right? And you start moving and grooving, right? I got to say, you know, it's the Christmas season. I have a specific song that when it comes on, I just can't stop moving. It's this one right here. Let's go, guys. Here we go. enough sorry thank you thank you but I just can't help it I've got Bollywood in my bones it just kind of comes out you know and, and, I, and I just can't you know and that's how David was right he had this sense of joy and celebration over the things of God and now the ark, the presence of God was going to be in his neighborhood, and he couldn't stop but get, but get jiggy with it, right? And he's going nuts. He's dancing. And he's celebrating, to almost to the point where his wife actually says to him, David, you're the king. Chill out, right? You got to act more dignified, right? Maybe, you, and this is David's response. You think that was undignified? Psst, I could get more undignified than this, and he gets crazy, and he's dancing, he's stripping, and he's going nuts. Because this love for God couldn't just stay in his heart. It couldn't just stay in his mind. It actually overflowed into his hands and his feet and his legs. He had to celebrate and enjoy and love God with his entire being, which included his body. He loved worship. And that's the thing. To cultivate a heart of joy is to cultivate a heart of worship. In fact, David once wrote that, that God actually lives. He inhabits in the praises of his people. When we worship him, he is there. He shows up in some powerful and tangible ways. When we lean into the arts and we look at the beauty all around us, it's a way for us to enjoy all that God has made. That's what we're made for. I love how one of the prophets says that God actually dances over us when we worship him. A heart of joy because we've encountered a God that is in the process of transforming us. That's what it means to have a heart for God, just like David had. It's a heart of humility that would put others before himself. It was a heart of joy that celebrated who God was and what he was doing, but it was also a heart of compassion to love those that no one else would love, to love those that were in the margins that maybe no one would accept or, or even pursue. And we see this in another story. You see, after David had become king, there were actually a bunch of men that were trying to depose David. He's like, you know what, David, you're not my king. And so David was at war trying to unite the kingdom. And finally, he had defeated all his enemies. And then he had one thing on his agenda. And he was looking for this guy named Ziba who was in charge of King Saul's household. And he says this, Is there no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Wait a minute. Time, time out, David, for a second here. You want to show kindness to the house of Saul? 
Like, what's going on here, David? This is the dude that tried to throw a spear at you and tried to kill you. This is the guy that chased you through the wilderness, hunting you down like a dog because you were a fugitive. That's the guy you want to show kindness to his family? David, haven't you seen Game of Thrones? Don't you know how this works? You've got to kill off all the competitors, right? That's how you take the Game of Thrones. But David's like, nope. And the next verse shows us the reason. It says this. Ziba answered the king, there is still a son of who? Jonathan. He is lame in both feet. A couple of things in here. Jonathan was actually David's best friend. Jonathan also happened to be the son of King Saul. And so one day when David and Jonathan were hanging out, uh, Jonathan said to David, listen, David, I know you're the rightful king. My dad, you know, he, he's on something. But I know you're the king. I get that. When you become king, if I'm not around, will you take care of my family? Will you take care of my kids? So David said, absolutely. I mean, it's his best friend. He'd do anything for him. And eventually Saul and Jonathan died together in a battle. And um, eventually they found out that one of Jonathan's sons lived, but he was lame in both feet. He was crippled. And when David found out, David went after him. He wanted to find him. And when, his when Saul's grandson, Jonathan's son, found out that David had summoned him, he's freaking out, right? He's thinking, oh my gosh. You know, my, my grandfather tried to kill David. He's going to try to kill me. What am I going to do? And as he's kind of freaking out, having this whole meltdown, finally he comes before the king. He's on the ground. He's groveling. And then David says this, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid, David said, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. I love this. Because David actually made a place for this kid to sit at the table of the king. Because when he came in, he goes, I'm a worthless dog. I'm crippled. I I'm not a whole person. I'm not a real, you know, how can you show this kindness to me? And David said, that's not true. That's a lie. You are a whole person. You are loved by God. You are loved by me. You have a place at my table. You're not eating at Denny's anymore. You're always going to have a spot at the king's table. You're going to have the access to the best food, the best land, because you're part of my family. See, David intentionally made space for the most vulnerable populations, the most vulnerable people. And one of the things I really love about our church is we seek to take that, seek to take that same intention for the most vulnerable people in our midst. One of the things that we love is we want to make space for families with special needs and give them a place at the table all the time. Red carpet treatment, white gloved touch, that's what we're about. You know, 530,000 meals. We want the folks that are the most vulnerable, that are the most oppressed, the most uh, loveless, to experience the love of God, because that is why Jesus came into this world. Amen? That's what we're in the business of, because that is part of the heart of God. Not just cultivate that as a church, but as individuals, because we see it in the heart of David, a spirit of humility, putting others ahead of himself. We also see a heart of joy, this sense of joy and celebration of all that God has done and God is doing but also a deep, deep compassion, knowing that the most broken, the most vulnerable need our attention, need our love, need us to serve them. Probably at this point you're thinking, yeah, I get it. David's perfect. He's got it all together. He's the man, you know. But, you know, remember Jesus' family tree? It's got a lot of flawed and broken people. And in the same way, David was also a flawed and broken guy. But he also had cultivated a heart of repentance, a heart of repentance. See, 
being a man after God's own heart doesn't mean that you're a perfect man. In fact, for David, it still meant that he was a man. And like most men, he had a fatal flaw he struggled with. He struggled with lust. And uh, there was a time when David was meant to go to war with all the other kings. It was kind of a, a part of the, of the year. But David decided to stay home and send other people to do what was his responsibility. And in the midst of that, he was uh, taking a walk on his roof, and he looks down, and he sees a woman bathing. Her name is Bathsheba. And he kind of lingers a little bit in that place of temptation, and he gives in. Has her come to his apartment. They sleep together. She gets pregnant. And David goes into, okay, i got to cover this up, right? And, and he gets her husband to come from, from the field. And he comes in, and, he, and he's like, hey, listen, I'll buy you a bottle of wine. Why don't you go and have a, a great night with your wife? He's like, no, I can't do that, my king. I have, to, I have to go and be in the field. I need to be with my men. And then David has him killed. Takes his wife, marries her. The perfect crime. Now everyone's thinking, wow, what a great king taking in a widow. No one saw, except for God. God sends another mouthpiece, a guy named Nathan, to David, and he says, David, God knows what you did. It does not please him. It does not honor him. It grieves his heart, and it's going to cause all sorts of damage and chaos. And at that point, you would think, you know, if you're the king, and all power, you have all the power in your fists. David could have said, I don't care what you think. I'm the king of Israel. I do what I want, and when I do it, that's what makes it right. You shut your mouth, or I'll have it shut for you. But instead, we don't see that attitude in David, do we? Instead, David does something unbelievable. He says, you're right, I've sinned. I've sinned before God and before men. He, you see the spirit of, of contrition, of deep, deep repentance. And what repentance basically, it means this. There's two parts to repentance. It's, one is taking responsibility for your sin, saying, you know what, I own it. I, I did that, you're right. And the other part of it is to ask for restoration. Like, God, can you restore me? Can, can you put the broken pieces back together of the sin and the brokenness in my life? And David was a man that did that. In fact, when he's reflecting on this incident, we see him talking about how he felt about this in Psalm 51. An incredible insight into his heart. He says this, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are what? Right in your verdict and justified. When you judge. See, David could have said, God, you, you got me all wrong, God. It wasn't my fault, it was her fault. He could have blamed, right? He could have said, Well, God, I'm the king, I can do what I want. He could have powered up and fought back. He could have gotten defensive and made excuses. He could have done all sorts of things, but instead he owned it. So often when God puts the spotlight on our lives, we want to make excuses or, or power up or double down. When simply a response needs to be just, yes, God, you're right. I'm going to turn my eyes back to you. I'm going to turn my heart back to you. But David didn't just stop there. And oftentimes in repentance, we kind of stop at that part. But he also took the risk and said, God, can you restore me? He says this, restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. See, David had lost something when he had sinned against God. And he said, God, can you bring it back? Can you restore that joy that I had when I was moving the ark? Can you bring that back? Because we don't just cultivate joy in worship. We also cultivate joy in repentance. 
when God shines a light and says, this is an area that you need to confess to find freedom from, rather than arguing with God or making excuses, our answer is, yes, Lord, you're right. You're right. I need you to change me. I need you to transform me. I can't do it on my own. I don't have the power, but you do. And that is when the power of God comes in us and he restores us and cleanses us and makes us the people that we are meant to be. When people in our lives come up to us and they confront us about habits and patterns that are destructive, what's our attitude? Do we get defensive? Do we power up? Or do we say with open hands, yeah, help me change. Help me become the man or the woman that God made me to be. Because to have the heart after God, whether you're a man or a woman, it's about having a heart that's soft and malleable and teachable, that wants to do what God has made you to do. That's the heart that David cultivated, a heart of humility and joy and compassion and repentance. All of these four pieces work together to help David have a heart towards God that could be changed by him. Because God sees beyond what we see. Samuel didn't see that heart. Jesse's, Jesse, his father, didn't see that heart, but God saw it. And those are things that we can cultivate in ourselves. You know, when I think about, you know, the heart of Christmas, it's all about these unexpected things that we never would have expected. Who would have thought in a shepherd boy there was a king? Who would have thought there, there was a baby that was the king of the universe? So I want to give you a challenge as we go into this week. It's one last week before Christmas, and it's this. If God sees beyond what you see, start to see how God sees. Start to cultivate that in your heart. Another way to put it is this. Rather than kind of taking things by the glitz and the glamour, what if we looked beyond it and into the heart of what it was really about? Now, I get it. It's hard, right? We're wrapping up things at work, wrapping up things for school. We're wrapping things up, uh, you know, getting presents and all the other things we need to do. So we're go, 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 go. It's nonstop, right? But if we found those moments that God actually comes to us and respond by just slowing down a little bit, and saying, God, what are you teaching me right now? What are you showing me right now? Because what happens is we start to slow down and, see, and we start to see beyond the everyday, beyond the ordinary. Because there's more going on beneath the surface than we can even realize. Because that's the Christmas story, isn't it? Think about this. There was more going on beneath the surface. There's more going on beneath the tinsel and the bows and the boxes than we ever would have seen or even thought of. Because remember, when Samuel was looking for the king, he walks into Jesse's house and goes, where's the king? Where's the next king of Israel? It's Eliab. He's the king. Wait, no? Him? The shepherd boy is the king? What? And then a thousand years later, there was another home in Bethlehem. When shepherds came in and said, where's the king? Where's the promised king? That's the king? That baby? Because there's something that happens when we can start to see beyond the presents and the gifts and all that stuff. And in the most unlikely of places, we find the greatest and most precious of gifts, a babe lying in the manger. See, the manger, it's just a feeding trial. Animals go there and they eat. There's nothing glitzy and glamorous 
But yet the babe in this feeding trial would one day be the one that occupies the throne of heaven. He would be the king of the universe. That's the unlikely, strange, weird story of Christmas, isn't it? Who would have thought that the God of the universe, infinity itself, would come in a finite baby, fragile, tiny, can't even care for itself? Who would have thought of that? Why would the God of the universe choose to come into the world through an unwed mother, through two teenage kids, as refugees where they couldn't find anywhere else, they had no place for them to go, But that's how the God of the universe chose to break into our reality, to bring his new way of being human, his new way of seeing the world and ourselves. He chose to do it that way. No one would have ever thought of that. In one of the most unlikely turn of events in the history of this planet. That's the heart of Christmas. God did it in a way that just we never would have expected. And when we slow down, and start to see how God sees beyond the ordinary every day. God wants to meet you and remind you who he's made you to be. Because that's the heart of it. Will you pray with me? Jesus, we just, um, we acknowledge, God, that there's been so many things that we're doing. We've been going at breakneck speed. And God, they're not bad things. We're shopping and we're getting ready. We're preparing for, um, for you to do some amazing things, to entertain family and friends. And, but God, I know that for me, it's just so easy to get caught up in the things. That I have. It's hard for me to slow down and remember that you're doing something extraordinary in the ordinary. So God, I pray that as, uh, as we go through this week, we have one more week left. Help us to, to see the heart of it all the unlikeliness and the weirdness of the Christmas story, yet that's the very story of you breaking into our world and doing what only you can do, bringing the salvation to all of us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.